Today's guest, Dr. David Shirazi, is a TMJ and sleep expert. Dr. David holds too many degrees and certifications for me to list, but to read his bio, please visit thatorganicmom.com forward slash sleep dash apnea. Dr. David is a dentist, an acupuncturist, a sleep expert, and lots more. If you have a sleep issue or sleep challenge, chances are Dr. David Shirazi knows how to diagnose and treat it. I hope that you'll stick around for the end of this episode as he shares his expertise. And you can find out more about Dr. David and his work with TMJ and sleep therapy at his website, which is tmjla.com. Welcome to A Healthy Bite. You're one nibble closer to a more satisfying way of life, a healthier you, and bite-sized bits of healthy motivation. Now let's dig in on the dish with Rebecca Huff. So I'm a dentist, I'm an acupuncturist. Uh, For five years I was a sleep technologist and I have a master's in psychology. I got into sleep because my focus was TMJ disorders and, uh, and chronic pain. And, you know, we found out that one of the reasons why we clench our teeth is because of sleep breathing disorders. Oh. And so I decided, okay, well, I should, I should learn. I should know more about these disorders. Because, for example, things like TMJ and sleep, you know, sleep apnea, these are things that can't be fixed with acupuncture and herbs right? Because if someone has a TMJ problem, if it's acute, it can be. But the problem with, with someone with the jaw problem is if they continue to clench their teeth every night uh, and sometimes during the day, that, you know, you, you're never going to resolve it with acupuncture, <laughs> even lasers or what have you, because the patient's going to go back into what we call parafunction. So as I was studying the sleep, the dental courses for dentists treating sleep apnea were all basically learn how to make this appliance, you know, and then buy our appliance. It was basically the gist of about 90, 95% of them. And then- uh, And by so appliance, I, do you mean the- Yeah, that's, that's how we treat. So the conventional treatment for sleep apnea is CPAP machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You take, you know, you put this mask on and it blows air like a balloon to open mm-hmm. up your airway and it works great, but it has a less than 50% adherence rate. So, you know, the next best thing is an oral appliance, FDA approved oral appliance. And in fact, all respectable medical bodies have all admitted that from mild to moderate apnea an oral appliance is preferred. Mm-hmm. Because patients are going to stick with it, and for and severe, by oral appliance, can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So whereas a CPAP is a pneumatic splint, it's literally putting positive airway pressure in the throat to blow it out like a balloon. An oral appliance is a splint. <laughs> it's like a physical splint. So the top and bottom pieces are attached, so that one your jaw can't fall back, and you know when you're when you're on your back. And it can keep your airway open at a certain spot. Mm-hmm. And now we've, we, we have additions to it. We, we can put little shelves in there that'll lift the tongue to help the patient swallow on the roof of their mouth. We can, we can actually have what's called a posterior tongue restrainer, which literally is like a false uvula that's hard. 
and it keeps the tongue down from falling back and rubbing up against the soft palate. And we even have ones that have like uh, a little to kind of help open up the nasal valves as well. And of course, my focus, since I know how bad the clenching and the TMJ problems can be as a result, mine always have a TMJ sort of twist to them to help control the clenching mm-hmm. and help minimize the clenching. I always, I almost always add that to my appliances. Are TMJ and sleep apnea always related? Not always, no. Okay. But it's hard to find a separation. Oh, really? <laughs> so the reason why my office, and, and my office, by the way, is a franchise. We have over 65 in the world. We're all over the US, Canada, all over Australia, New Zealand, England, Bahrain, and Dubai. The, you know, and that's unprecedented for the private sector having a methodology to treat TMJ disorders, let alone sleep apnea. That's a whole other thing. But yeah, so we want to make appliances to treat a TMJ disorder to re- help minimize the clenching and keep the jaw in a very neutral position, what we call centric relation. And we'll actually bother to take an x-ray to find out if we did it or not. Wow. <laughs> that's one of the that's one of the ways that's, you know, internally, I would tell another dentist, if a dentist said, what makes your place different than, you know, the other places that are doing it will tell them, well, we do a proper neurological testing to find out if we can, the, the origins of their TMJ disorder. But externally, we, you, as a lay person, you could see, does the person not just take an x-ray to see what my jaw looks like? Mm-hmm. Do they bother to take an x-ray to see where they're putting it? Okay. That's something you can do because traditional oral facial pain doctors won't do that. And what's called neuromuscular dentists won't do that. And they're just kind of like crossing their fingers going, we got it, you know, sort of thing, which we don't, we don't do that. We Mm -hmm. don't do that. Yeah. It just, I'm a little hung up on this though, because Mm -hmm. if someone's clenching their jaw, Mm -hmm. it seems like it would be really hard to have you know, snoring or whatever I think of when I think of sleep apnea as like mouth open. And when you think of TMJ is mouth closed. So can you explain it? I I mean, to me, I'm like, I'm stuck there. Yeah. So there's been a couple studies done and I'll go into more detail about what we think the origins of it are. So a polysomnogram, which is an overnight sleep study, like in a lab with like 20 leads all over your head, face, arms, chest, and legs. And we can see what's happening in real time. And what these studies have found is that when someone's airflow was starting to slow down, right? They didn't lose oxygen. They didn't hold their breath completely. They just had very shallow breathing like that. What they found was as the air, the airflow was tanking on the thermistor, their patients were clenching their teeth. They were using their masseter muscles, right? And the clenching muscles went up. And then when the airway was went back to normal, it was no longer restricted flow, the masseter stopped off, right? So we, we see that. And then we also see that, so that particular condition is called upper airway resistance. So when we look further and find out when there's a nasal obstruction and someone is mouth breathing, and then there are what's called entitled CO2 drops, well, we actually see the clenching reflex happening after that. So what will happen is they'll, their mouth will be open and they'll, what we say, outgas 
too much CO2. They'll get rid of too much CO2. And believe it or not, I know it's going to sound shocking. CO2 is more important than oxygen as far as your body's concerned. Okay. Whereas we have one or two oxygen sensors in our body. We have close to a thousand CO2 receptors in our body. Right now, evolution does not do that for fun. Right. It doesn't leave empty spaces and it doesn't create sophisticated receptors for no good reason. <laughs> so CO2 must be important if, if we have that many receptors in our body. Right. And of course, just from from physiology, from physiology and medical physiology textbooks, we know that when you're sleeping, if if you get rid of too much CO2, your body will create what's called central sleep apnea, where your brain tells your body not to breathe. Right. That sounds and risky. It's, it's not, it does it, it does it conscious. It does it. Well, I shouldn't say consciously. It does it deliberately. And what, what it does is because your metabolism is still rolling when you're, you know, having these apneic events. And so when your metabolism is done and your CO2 level creaks back up, then it'll re-engage uh, breathing, right? It could also be caused by excessive opiate morphine use, but that's less frequency than, than mouth breathing. I mean, mouth breathing is really the most common, the most common challenge. Yeah, right. Mouth yeah. breathing at night. So mm -hmm. I know you have a quiz on your website. What this quiz is basically finding out if you are at risk of sleep apnea. Yeah, to basically see, hey, does this apply to you? Do you do you see it in your children? And you know, we know that sleep apnea is causal to so many common diseases like type two diabetes, hypertension, stroke, potentially, that if you have that in your medical history, even pre-diabetes or pre-hypertension, knowing that your sleep apnea may be at the root of it could get you, if you decide to go get it treated, get you possible a resolution of those health problems. So how, and this, forgive me if this is a dumb question, Not but how are sleep apnea and diabetes related? So the, the main explanation is inflammation, okay? By retarding our sleep. So we have four stages of sleep, stage mm -hmm. one, two, three, and REM. So stage three is delta, where we get almost all of our growth hormone. And, you know, REM is where we get mental and emotional resolution. Mm -hmm. And there's still, a, we're still learning about REM. Like we only learned like five, 10 years ago that we have a lymphatic system in our brain called the glymphatic system. And specifically during REM, it cleans out the beta amyloid plaques in our brain, right? Mm -hmm. So this is not known, sleep apnea, we've only known about it for 40 years. It's, not, it's a pretty new science for us. Mm -hmm. So, and, and, and interestingly, so Western medicine itself is well under 250 years old, right? Chinese medicine, 5,000, Ayurvedic medicine, 6,000 years old. You know, they didn't have these obesity problems and these sleep apnea problems in, that we know of in the days of Ayurvedic and Chinese medicine, mm. right? So solutions, clever solutions and, uh, from acupuncture and herbs didn't exist back then. And so we're trying to be creative with them now when it's a physical problem. Mm -hmm. um, so, so when you have 
uh, an apneic event or when you have those upper airway resistance where you have the shallow breathing and then you do that, you kick yourself out of those deeper stages of sleep into a lighter stage of sleep, right? So you could do that 400 times a night and not even know it, right. not even know it. Because why? Because you're asleep, right? So by getting kicked out. So once we're done growing, the purpose of growth hormone is to help you repair. And if you can't repair yourself, this is going to cause inflammation in your body because the purpose of inflammation is to repair, mm-hmm. right? That's why we talk about the omega-3s and the omega-6 fatty acids, right? Omega-3s are very anti-inflammatories and omega-6s are very pro-inflammatories. And you think, well, why the hell would I want an omega-6, right? But you're recovering from an injury mm-hmm. and exercise is an injury, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's repair involved. You need you know, inflammatory markers to help you repair, right? But on a chronic level, these are supposed to be short-term repairs. You know, <laughs> you're not supposed to be in a perpetual level of repair. Mm-hmm. So that kicks up your insulin resistance and your blood sugar levels. Wow, very interesting. Now with blood pressure, it's actually a little bit different. So when we're having the hypoxemia during the night, Yes, our heart rate and our heart pressure must go up in order to get oxygen to our vital organs. Because, of course, it's extremely important. And you would think, well, after you wake up, why would you still have hypertension? It's already done. It's already done the deed. You don't have a sleep apnea when you're awake. Well, we have an autonomic nervous system. And our autonomic nervous system, you've heard of it as fight or flight. Uh, or rest and restore, right? We've got the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. When we are in sympathetic mode, right? And our, by the way, just so you know about the autonomic nervous system, it's either or. The, and we don't have a mechanism that's like, okay, well, we're going to run away from this predator. <laughs> and we're also going to digest this lunch that we just had, <laughs> right? If there is none of that. It's like, we're, we're oh, that's our focus right now is running away or fighting. Or Right now we're vulnerable, but we're repairing and we're digesting and we're restoring. Make sense? Mm -hmm. So when you're in that fight or flight mode from constantly being what's called aroused in your sleep from those deeper stages of sleep, you get into this autonomic mode, right? And and that autonomic mode is what shifts you into hypertension. And the reason I say curative for those diseases is because we have countless number of sleep studies and studies themselves where we've taken patients with both diabetes and sleep apnea, treated them with sleep at a CPAP or oral appliances. I'm talking thousands of studies in both and their diabetes either goes away or is totally resolved. Type two, wow. same thing with hypertension. Right now with hypertension, there's so many diseases, right? Diet, chronic pain. There's a lot of reasons why someone can have hypertension, but this is what I tell my medical colleagues. I go, listen, if you've got your patients on three industrial strength diuretics and you're basically barely keeping them below 140 over hundred or 140 over 90, it's pretty guaranteed that they have sleep apnea. Just do a test and you'll find out. Right. But if someone has just, you know, 
mild hypertension and they can get it resolved with some diet and exercise or medi light, med you know, safe medication use, then it's not necessarily sleep apnea, but it could be. The way you find out is you test. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as far as say like someone who snores, but they really don't seem to, or they don't know of any other health issues is mm -hmm. that snoring is enough. Snoring enough. is enough because snoring still causes the arousals. They did a huge study out of the Cleveland Clinic. They started with 1,100 patients and they did sleep studies on both bed partners, husband and wife. And what they found was that of the people that had sleep apnea, they had 27 arousals an hour. Okay. And of the, the bed partners with no sleep apnea, they had 21 arousals per hour on average. Wow. Right? So they started off with 1,100 people and they whittled it down to 150 that could tolerate the CPAP. And of course, the people on the CPAP benefited. You know, they had a lot of improvement. But then they asked, they didn't do sleep studies, but they asked the bed partners, how are you doing since your partner has been on CPAP? And they're like, wow, my headaches have been gone. My mood is better. My children tell me I'm much easier to deal with. <laughs> A little bit of my aches and pains have gone away. You know, Totally. Um, uh, yeah, that's crazy. I mean, honestly, yeah. it's I'm sure it's life changing for so many people. I know lot of people who will like my friends, their husband will have a CPAP machine and my friends will say that they get better sleep. My husband and I don't sleep in the same bedroom because he snores and he doesn't appear really have any, I mean, he's a healthy person, you yeah. know, he's, he's in a good way. And mm -hmm. I don't know, but anyways, I do think it's very interesting because it is so disruptive. And that's part of why we don't sleep in the same bed is that's because right. the snoring disrupts my sleep and I am, a and it ruins your day. It does. It ruins my life, honestly. Yes, and that sounds yes, so harsh and people yes, think it's this is so not, rude that no, I don't sleep in the same room no, with my husband no. because hey, listen, I love him. But I, I bet want you want sleep. to sleep. I bet you want to sleep in the same room with him. I bet you prefer to do it if he was quiet. Well, I would like to sleep in the same room with him, but not as much as I would like to get a good night's sleep every night, which that is, is like a very self-honoring thing to do. Yeah. There's and honestly, absolutely nothing wrong with that. For so many years, you know, I tried and I, I know other people who snore and I know how disruptive it is for them. Like when you can hear someone in the next room, you don't want to be sleeping in the same room with them. That's that's. You don't want way... to be sleeping in the same house. No, I I, I get it. So, yeah. you know, I encourage people to do something about it. Now, some of the challenges, what patients have shared with me, mm -hmm. is that they're afraid to tell their doctor because if they go and do an in lab study, they're going to get the CPAP machine and they don't want it. Right. And I tell them it's okay. You can get an in home study. Okay. It's okay. If you're in the mild to moderate range, which most people are, or if you just have snoring, you can get an oral appliance. Okay. So, you know, I mean, obviously they're already in my chair, so I, they, I, they're already right. here to, to get the treatment, <laughs> but I want people to know that, you know, don't be so afraid to bring it up to your physician Mm -hmm. And if a physician have any sense, they should know that being in a lab is, 
you know, not the funnest thing in the world. So I should tell you, so I, I'm going to I have my own lab, like a three bed lab. We also do in-home studies, but my lab is dedicated to research. I'm not so focused on doing sleep studies because there's like six places in my neighborhood that, that have in, and they all take insurance and I don't. Right. Mm. So I'm not here to compete with them. I'm here to do research. Right. And I have the best sleep apnea equipment in the world, bar none. It costs two and a half to five times more than all the other competitors, right? And one of the qualities that makes them so great is rather than, you know, you have to wear all those leads, right? Right. You have to be tethered to a nightstand that's collecting all this data off of you. So basically you're stuck sleeping, you know, like a rolled up rug, right? Like this on your back. (laughs) So with mine, it's Bluetooth. So everything is on the person. It's on the little shoulder pad. They, you could roll over in your bed. You could walk to the bathroom and come back without being unplugged and replugged. Uh, it's great. Wow. And one night we were doing, we were doing an insomnia study and one of our machines crapped out and the, and the, and then we had it repaired and then we got the new one and you know, we couldn't give the new one to a research subject without testing it first, right? So I said, you know, I'll do it. I'll, you guys can do a sleep study on me, right? So I was, a, I was a patient. My sleep technologist at the time is now the president of the board of sleep technologists, okay? And the tech, the person from the company that you know, that cells, they were setting it up and they were doing what's called biocalibrations on me, right? So I had all the stuff on me, the nasal cannula, the whole thing. And I told them, I said, so, hey guys, this is the best equipment in the world for measuring sleep apnea, right? They go, yeah. And I go, and it's the most convenient for the patient because it's so, so many, so much of it is wireless. They go, yes. I go, I'm not comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They just laughed at me and went on, you know, what about their business, right? So I understand there is a difference between an in-home and an in-lab uh, study. Even the best in-lab study is not the most comfortable thing in the world, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's one night. So it's really not the end of the world. I did it. I slept through the night with all that stuff on me and it was fine. And it's, it's okay to do it in the lab. You get the most amount of uh, of data. Now, at the same time, I'll say, if you're the kind of person that when you go on vacation and you're staying at a hotel and the first night you're not getting a good night's sleep, you're kind of getting used to the room, the air conditioning vent and the, and then the people honking outside, whatever. And then this, by the second, third, fourth night, you're more comfortable and you can sleep better. If that's you, it's probably better. You do the sleep study in your own home. You follow? Mm-hmm. Because, why? Because you're going to get a more realistic sleep study. Mm-hmm. That just seems to me like it would be across the board, you know, for people like it's more accurate if you're at home. Well, it's more accurate if you're at home, but also when you're at home, you're only getting what, six channels of data. Whereas in a lab, you're getting at least 20. Okay. And a big chunk of it is the EEG, your brainwave leads, and your autonomic nervous system, your heart rate variability. These are incredible tidbits of information. You get more data in one night of an in-lab study 
than you do in any blood test. Mm, wow. Okay. okay. It's an incredible amount of data, mm-hmm. incredibly useful amount of data. Okay. So and it would be more, it would be more in depth information if you mm-hmm. were getting the test done in a lab. Truly it would be, Okay. but, but always in, in home is better than no lab study. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Okay. Gotcha. And, mm-hmm. and if you're, and I would say anecdotally, I would say, I mean, if your chief complaint is insomnia, you might need to go in a lab so they can see your brain waves. Mm-hmm. A lot of the studies that are in home don't measure your brain waves. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah, anecdotally, if you're the kind of person that doesn't sleep well in a foreign bed the first night, you know, that's another reason to do it in your own bed and mm-hmm. don't be afraid to ask for it. Right. I feel so bad for people who can't sleep. And and honestly, even, you know, I was talking to my husband this morning because Mm -hmm. normally I get up at about six o'clock, five, between five and six. So I go to bed earlier. That's another one of our sleep differences. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, we have quite a few, but anyways, so I usually make his coffee and bring it to him in his bedroom in the morning. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we chat or whatever. And then, you know, we go on about our day, we get up and go on. But this morning it was like five till seven. And I woke up and I was like, oh my gosh, you know? And so I got up and I was like, sorry, I'm late to make coffee and everything. And he's like, Mm -hmm. oh, you must've slept really well last night. Well, I wear this aura (laughs) ring that measures your heart rate variability and all Mm -hmm. of that stuff. So I showed him the, the graph of my sleep last night. He goes, wow, all those ups and downs. I guess you didn't get a good night's sleep. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Look at all that REM sleep I got last night. Yeah, I think I got like two hours of REM sleep. Do you know what percentage of your sleep? Because that sounds like a lot. Did you get eight hours? Well, did you get eight hours of sleep? Yeah. Let me grab my phone and I'll tell you. So that's okay. Ironically in that. Yeah. It's just, you know, I thought it was pretty decent. I usually get eight hours of sleep, but I can tell you exactly because I don't really have too many sleep problems. I feel like. I feel like I sleep pretty good. Let's see. Percentage. Okay. I got... 21% 21% REM sleep. Okay. The ideal is 25. So 21 is okay. Obviously it's going to vary night by night. Mm-hmm. So that it could improve a little. <laughs> I oh, mean, yeah. I, got, and it I will. got a 92 on my sleep score last night. So I felt like that was yeah. decent. <laughs> so ju- just so you know, these <laughs> Fitbits and these I know they're not stuff, perfect. They're not, they're not at all. Like the Fitbit is actually... It's borderline worse than useless, you know, worse than nothing, right? Okay. For sleep, for sleep. Yeah. The aura ring is, you know, you can get some decent data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it don't won't show you bubble, the origin. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, it's, it's like I said, it's one of the better ones. Okay, yeah. But like, like anything, it's like, unless you have a proper medical device, it's not going to tell you the, do you know what yeah. I mean? The, right. Yeah. Oh, I know. Like, I mean, the thing about it is I think if you have a sleep problem, clearly you should get a sleep study done. But for mm-hmm. me, I feel like I get good sleep most of the time. And mm-hmm. so for me, it's more of a curiosity than anything else. I'm like, Ooh, you know, last night was great. You know, the other night wasn't so great. The main mm-hmm. thing that for me, it helps with my sleep hygiene is that good. I, once I started using a tracker, I was more inclined to go to bed and get up at the same time every day, as opposed to, well, I could watch one more episode of this, or I'll just, you know, go out with, you know, do this. I got into more of a habit of 
keeping a a pretty regular sleep routine. So that was the way it helped me. And Mm. so I think that there are a lot of people out there, maybe they don't realize that they're snoring and that maybe they're not getting really good sleep. They know they go to sleep, but then they feel like crap the next day. They don't know why. Yes, exactly. Well, I was going to talk about that. You had touched on it tangentially and I wanted to bring it up. So men and women past menopause with sleep apnea will complain of fatigue, not when they wake up. They'll complain of fatigue around four or five o'clock. Like sometime in the late afternoon, they'll have a little crash. They need a little pick me up, right? A little sugary the dish or a Red mm-hmm. Bull or mm-hmm. coffee or something that is very typically unsound sleep, right? Whereas women of childbearing age, they'll based on the estrogen levels, when they wake up, they're like, oh, I'm exhausted. You know, they feel the fatigue right away. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, not to keep harping on this with my husband, poor guy. I'm like throwing him under the bus entirely here, but you he, know, it's so common though. It's yeah. So he recently, I, I wear an appliance. I'm one of those people. Well, he, he drank energy drinks for years and then his blood mm. sugar, I, I would test his blood sugar in the morning. I'm like, Oh, I'm just curious if your blood sugar is high because some of the things he was saying to me made me think maybe, maybe his blood sugar is out of balance. So I checked and it was a little high one morning. And so I'm like, you need to do this and this and this. So I gave him some tips and he gave up the energy drinks entirely. Oh, that's wonderful. And I mean, he has energy drinks are terrible. I know he has thanked me so many times. He was like, I did not realize how much it was affecting my health and everything else. And so he's been off of them for several months now and Mm -hmm. he's eating protein more regularly and he, you know, some other things, but anyways, Yeah. yeah, I feel, I wonder how much of it's related between the sleep and needing energy drinks, but he does work really hard. So, yeah. So the, there is what's it called four hour energy or five hour energy. There's oh, the ones with B12, the ones with B12. That's okay. Mm-hmm. That's okay. I would prefer it to have uh, methylcobalamin instead of cyanocobalamin, but as that's what B12 is, but I mean, that's a vitamin source of energy, right? right? Mm-hmm. Eating a whole food, like a mango, is a good source of getting those vitamins and get it, picking up your energy, you know, but people don't usually cut open a sticky mango at the end of the day, but it, you know, that is a much healthier alternative. You know, we're getting there. There was a time where when colonists, and even to this day, colonists would go to quote unquote, third world countries, Africa, Asia, et cetera, aboriginals and say, Look at you guys walking without shoes. You're savages, right? <laughs> now we're talking about the benefits of earthing and grounding, which are real scientifically proven things. <laughs> yeah. And they would just look like, look how dirty you are. You have chickens running in, you know, in your, around your house, right? <laughs> now every rich Karen wants a goddamn chicken farm <laughs> in her backyard so that she can get her own eggs. Yeah. Okay. So for years, we've been making fun of these people, but they've been around this planet longer than anyone and they know what works. Right? You <laughs> know, the truth. Oh so, my goodness. So coming back to the diet, addressing your issues with diet and good sleep, there is nothing higher than that. Mm-hmm. 
right? There is, so one of the greatest forms of medicine is called naturopathic medicine. And one of my best friends is one, he's retired. And he, he it was a naturopath for so long. He was the fifth, uh, the fifth person to be boarded in my state as a naturopath. That's how old he, he is in the profession. He would tell me their motto, naturopath's motto is first heal the gut, right? Mm. So they would do case studies with like, okay, patient comes in clinically depressed, fibromyalgia, chronic pain all over the body, rheumatoid arthritis. How do we address this patient? The answer is always their gut first. And then let's say, okay, patient came in with bipolar, with gout and, you know, hypoxia, like lack of oxygen. What's, how, how do we work up this patient? Check the gut, like <laughs> no matter what it is, the first thing they do, because it's quite smart to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, we have several feet of stomach lining. <laughs> right. You know, you have to kind of think, what I try to do in my practice is think of things in the context of evolution. Okay. So if evolution has deemed so many things in our body that we must have in order to survive, there must be a darn good reason for it. Right. So for example, sleep, we are unconscious one third out of every day on a good day, but yes, one third out of every day. So as we evolved, that means that we, our evolution has decreed that it's okay to be unconscious and horizontal in the dark every day because we need to restore ourselves in our sleep. Okay, think about this for a second. When we sleep, everyone knows to go horizontal. No one ever told you to stand up to go to sleep. You instinctively knew to lay down and you instinctively know to do it in a dark room. Okay. So we are to be unconscious in a dark room, lying down, vulnerable to attack eight out of eight hours out of every single day of our lives. Yeah. Crazy. So that must mean it's pretty important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That must mean we need to do it. So same thing with the gut. We have this extremely comp- complex gut system, right? We have, we have processing, you know, large molecules, macromolecules, and then we break it down with enzymes. Our gut is filled with trillions of bacteria, which then further process our food and give nutrients that we wouldn't otherwise have if it wasn't for those bacteria, right? We have like a whole farm going on in our gut. And that's not even saying about how sophisticated our teeth are in chewing and the digestive enzymes in our saliva. So we've invested a huge amount because one, we need to eat, right? And we need to, as best we can, process different kinds of food, right? By the way, I've never seen a more controversial topic online in social media than are humans made to be vegetarian or carnivore. Like I've never seen, like people will have less arguments about religion, sexual orientation, and even vaccines, okay, in in today's time, than they will about uh, that subject of, you know, carnivore or- Vegan versus, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and it- 
I, I don't even understand how, how that's logical, right? Because animals that are pure vegans, what we call them obligate herbivores, they have two stomachs to break down the fiber, the cellulose fiber in plants. We don't, we don't have that. Right. <laughs> right. And, but at the same time, we don't have teeth that are made for attacking like, you know, lions and et cetera, but teeth don't determine whether we're uh, carnivores or not, by the way, they, they don't determine that because apes have giant fangs and they're vegetarian and they're, they're like herbivores. Right. So, but the fact that we have a complex digestive system tells us that we are omnivores. Makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Right. And we can control that. If we look at the greatest book ever written on nutrition, and that will ever be written on nutrition, is called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration by Weston Price. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, as you know, he did research on, you know, in the indigenous cultures and he did it twice, nine years, twice with a 20 year break in between. Mm-hmm. And he found 14 societies that on average live to be a hundred and can still chop wood and carry lumber, chop wood and carry water at age a hundred. Mm. And only one of one, one of them was vegetarian. Okay. None of them were vegan. By the way, there are, there are, there are known diseases associated with being vegan and not getting supplemental support. And the ones that were, that was vegetarian and the ones that did eat meat, it really never went more than 10% of their diet. Like never like 10% was the max animal protein. And then they supplemented it with what we call a probiotic prebiotic. So they would take something fermented like kimchi, sauerkraut, whatever, and eat it with the meat, which would help break down the meat and also add fiber to help peristalsis in the gut, mm-hmm. right? So we, we have a lot of data, but yeah. Right, and it's, it's basically the same. Like if you look at Weston A. Price as any of the books he's written or the articles, and then like, for example, is it David? I can't remember his last name that wrote The Blue Zones. And yeah. it's basically the same concept. I mean, if you look at Okinawans, they're eating miso with their moderate amount of protein meat. It's, it's always a little bit of something fermented. So, I mean, I think it's yes. a great point. And then Weston A. Price also addressed the issue of like phytic acid in beans and all mm-hmm. of that stuff and like how to go about eating beans and reducing the phytic acid. So I, I, I agree. I think that, you know, all things in moderation. And when I say all yeah. things, I don't mean like junk things in moderation. I mean, like, you know, food groups, eliminating a complete food group, I feel like is, it it, it always comes back and bites you in the butt. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. So that's a little off, I guess a little, maybe. No, no. I'm so glad to hear you're so like, like like-minded. Yeah. I mean, I get a lot of people that reach out to me and then I'll go and look at their website or something. They're like really pushing a plant-based diet. And a lot of times I just have to turn down some of those because I don't want to push a plant-based diet. Now I did have a cancer survivor who says she eats a predominantly plant-based diet 
she's been in remission for 30 years. I'm like, I get it. She was diagnosed with stage four terminal cancer at 17. She lived in a really bad environment. So anyways, you know, I think in certain circumstances that can be okay, but for general health, I feel like people have to eat at least a moderate amount of meat. No, I, I agree with you. There are certain things that plants don't give us. There are certain vitamins, B vitamins that plants don't give us. And I don't know. And even bacteria, I told, we talked about the importance of the bacteria that we harvest, that we use in our gut. We get that from like raw milk, raw cheese right. um, and fermented plants. So yeah, I mean, yeah. We, and we interestingly, yeah. recently started supplementing with human milk oligosaccharides and it oh. made such a huge improvement in my digestion. I could not believe because I eat prebiotic foods, you know, I eat asparagus and Brussels sprouts and all the prebiotic foods. I feel like I do a pretty good job of eating both, you know, fermented foods with probiotics and also prebiotics. But yeah, when I added the HMO supplement, I was amazed at how much better I felt. So apparently it takes quite a bit of prebiotics to keep your gut in balance. So that's just a little extra (laughs) made Mm -hmm. me think about it when you mentioned it, but getting back to sleep apnea. Yeah. Um, so what, Exactly. You said that you do sleep studies for research. Like what's the goal of your research? What, what's the end goal? It it depends. So in the insomnia study, we were, we were, it was a double blind randomized control drug study, which now the drug has come to market because it was effective. I I don't deal with the product. I, I do the studies, right? So, and a sleep study is a very benign study. It's like, we're not injecting anything in them where we're measuring their apnea and they're measuring the quality of their sleep. So Mm -hmm. right now we're about to start a study on patients with sleep apnea, mild to moderate, that if an oral appliance can be used, a daytime oral appliance can be used with designed to tone the upper pharyngeal space. Oh, wow. Right. The upper pharyngeal muscles. So there's been, of course, anecdotal evidence of people snoring and sleep apnea, mild to moderate sleep apnea being resolved with this device. So we want to start off with like 60 subjects and see what happens. That's fascinating. So I guess it wouldn't obstruct them from being able to perform daily activities like talking on the phone and- Well, no, no, no. They don't wear it all day long. They wear it for two hours out of the day. I got you. And yeah, and then they do the, and then they sleep with it. Right. Oh, they sleep. And and then we're going to do before and after in lab studies. And Mm -hmm. both of the studies are going to be without the appliance in the mouth. Mm -hmm. So we're going to see, did we make effectual changes, like long lasting effectual changes? Mm -hmm. And so how do you work with people? Like, do you work with people who have sleep apnea or what? Yeah, no, I have a daily clinical practice Uh and uh, I usually get people that can't tolerate CPAP or they know they never want CPAP. Mm-hmm. So we make them an oral appliance. And, and there's over over 100 FDA approved oral appliances. So we would then go uh, and evaluate them and see what kind of appliance we think will work for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, make sure they're comfortable with it, send them back to their doctor to get another sleep study done so we can see if it worked. Mm-hmm. So do you work with people online or only in person? That can only be done in person. Mm-hmm. That can only be done in person. And where are you at? I'm in the Los Angeles area. I have two centers, one in Brentwood, 
mm-hmm. which is just in between Santa Monica and LA and another one in Thousand Oaks. I see. So if someone wanted to get in touch with you or, you know, work with you, they the would just- The easiest website, the easiest uh-huh. website to go to is tmjla.com, right? And there's a lot of information. I have a bunch of videos on YouTube. I did a one hour Google talk. Those are all free to view on Google, on YouTube. Mm-hmm. For people with any kind of sleep issues or mostly just sleep? Well, I mean, there might be some overlap. We talk mm-hmm. about sleep hygiene and we talk about pain and we talk a lot about children's pain and sleep, predominantly sleep issues. Mm-hmm. It affects children far worse than it does adults. Pain? No, sleep apnea. Oh, sleep apnea. Okay. So you said that you also deal with people who have chronic pain. Yes. Pain issues that affect sleep or just chronic pain? No, just chronic pain from the neck up. Mm -hmm. From the neck up. Yeah. So, I mean, I am a dentist before I became an acupuncturist. So, you know, my focus is on jaw disorders, facial neuralgias, uh, tics, things that have detention type headaches, migraine type headaches, things that overlap with dentistry. I recently received back some, I had genetic testing done. And one of the interesting rare genes I had was one that made me more likely to clench my teeth at night, which I thought was pretty interesting. I was like, I didn't even know that they could see that, you know, check that in a gene, but apparently there is a gene that makes you more likely to clench your teeth at night. Yeah. You know, honestly, genetics and epigenetics. So genetics is sort of like our hardware, right? And epigenetics is what happens, what we consume, what we think, what we do that alters our phenotypic expression, right? So, I mean, honestly, even if you didn't have that gene, you could still clench your teeth, okay? <laughs> okay. But like, for, like, for example, some people, the, the condition of migraine is what's called central sensitization. It's your brain that makes you have these migraine headaches, okay? But you can have a peripheral nerve injury that causes it, like a TMJ pain that's chronic, mm-hmm. okay? So, but why does do some people get a migraine and some people get neuralgia when they have chronic TMJ? That's their genetics. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. That's sort of our milieu, but it's a, our environment has much more of an impact. Most people have markers to make cancer, but if, if they have a healthy lifestyle, their chances go way down right. regardless of their genetic markers. Yeah. That's right? a really and good that point. That used to be taboo. That used to be a taboo subject. You're not allowed to say that there was any reason to get cancer other than genetics. Interesting. All right. Well, I enjoyed talking to you so much. I love the topic of sleep. Well, all things health related, but I love to talk to someone and ask them questions about sleep because I just think it's so important. And I, I really appreciated you pointing out the fact that our brain does that detox work at night, because I think a lot of people skimp on sleep and they don't realize how important it is for their body to be able to take out the trash, so to speak at night. So I appreciated you bringing that up. And if people want to find you again, your website is the fastest way to find you. TMJLA.com. It's, a, it's such a, it rolls off the tongue pretty nice. It does. It does. 
Yeah. <laughs> Love it. All right. Well, thank you, David, for being here. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely to talk to someone that's so well-knowledged and well-versed in all these health issues. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review so other people can learn about this podcast. Find out more about sleep, hygiene, eating healthy, tasty recipes, zero-waste lifestyle, and lots more on thatorganicmom.com. Help us spread the word. Be blessed and stay healthy.